This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. You know, one of the hallmarks of economic crises like this one is that people actually start businesses. Slack, Betterment, even Airbnb, all companies we featured on this show were all founded during the last economic crisis. And a lot of people are talking about using this period now as a chance to reimagine what they do. And if that's you, well, I've written a book that you might find helpful. It's called What Else? How I Built This. And I wrote it for anyone who is starting a business, thinking about starting one, or just looking for inspiration and ideas from the incredible stories in the book. The How I Built This book is designed to be that voice in your head cheering you on when you're feeling like you just want to give up. The book is based on interviews with hundreds of leading entrepreneurs, and it traces how to start a business or pursue a big idea and how to avoid the big mistakes along that journey. Normally, I'd be leaving on a book tour at around this time where hopefully I'd get a chance to meet some of you and thank you for your support of our show. But of course, book tours are all going virtual right now. So I wanted to make sure that you and our most devoted listeners get a chance to get a signed copy. And if you pre-order the book in the next few weeks before September 15th, I'll send you a free signed book plate that fits right inside. You can order the book however you get your books, or you can find all the information you need at GuyRaz.com or HowIBuiltThis.com. So the How I Built This team is taking a much-needed and very short break this week, but we will definitely be back next Monday with a brand-new episode. As for today's show, well, some of you may remember a time not too long ago when e-commerce was supposed to be dead, like over. But today's episode is about two guys who never stopped believing in the internet or in the many things that you can buy on it. This one first ran back in April of 2018. Enjoy. So, all right, I'm going to read some of the um, websites that you guys launched Hotplates.com. I'm assuming that sold hot plates. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, allbarstools.com sold hey, barstools. What do you think that sold? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're doing good. You're doing good. All right. Mydinnerplate.com. Nice. That's a classic. I love this one. Everygrandfatherclock.com. <laughs> a very hot category online. Who knew people were searching for that? We did. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how an online search for birdhouses led two college roommates down an internet rabbit hole that inspired what would become Wayfair, an e-commerce company that now sells almost $5 billion worth of home goods each year. Thank you.
So pretty much everyone we've had on the show had a passion for a product that they needed to put out into the world. Lara American believed the world needed Lara bars. Jenny Britton Bauer was convinced that her ice cream was going to change how people thought about ice cream. Even Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, thought everyone should have access to free knowledge. But I'm here to tell you that that is not always the case. In fact, sometimes the product isn't what drives the founders. What really drives them is the challenge, or rather, solving the challenge. And that's basically the story behind Wayfair. Neither Steve Conine nor Neeraj Shah felt that strongly about home furnishings. But they did feel like people should have choices, no matter where they lived. Because there was a time when, if you lived in, say, Evansville, Indiana, you couldn't easily get the same type of cool coffee table or sofa that someone in San Francisco or New York could get. And today, Wayfair sells almost $5 billion worth of this stuff every year. Wayfair was actually the third company Steve and Neeraj started together. They met as teenagers at a summer camp for math and engineering nerds in the early 1990s. They quickly lost touch, but then, almost a year later, as if fate herself was watching over these guys, they both ended up as first years at Cornell, assigned to dorm rooms on the same corridor. Did, did you know both of you? Did you know that the other one was going to Cornell? No, we hadn't really kept in touch, so I think it was a, it was a surprise. Yeah, pretty much. I was like, hey, what's up? How have you been this past year? So were you friends, like, right away? Yeah, we were part of a, you know, I think when you're freshman year, you sort of have a small group of, of friends that you sort of um, connect with and spend a lot of your time with. And, and we were in that group together. And then junior year, Neeraj and I started, we got to be a lot closer and lived together that year, uh, hmm. junior year. And senior year, we actually lived together as well with a, with a few other um, people up at uh, Cornell. Yeah. Did you guys, Neeraj, did you, did you and Steve used to talk about starting a business when you were in college? I don't know that we ever talked about it per se, but our last semester at Cornell, we took an entrepreneurship course as one of our elective courses. And in this entrepreneurship course, one of the things you had to do was create a business plan. And what really happened is through the process of doing the project, which was creating the business plan, we basically started our first business. Yeah, it was 95 and it was the very early years of the internet. The Netscape browser had kind of come out that year. Yeah. Um, our idea was actually to develop some internet directory services. And we would go downtown in Ithaca, New York and try to pitch companies on paying us five bucks to have a listing in our internet directory. And of course, most would look at us like we're nuts. <laughs> um, a few would say, hey, kid, that's interesting, but I, you know, I don't even have a, a homepage they called it at the time. Could you help me, you know, build a website and, you know, maybe at least get present on the internet? And, you know, what would that cost me? And so the business turned into uh, kind of a, an internet consulting business that built sites for companies. And you kind of knew how to do the basics because you were engineering students? Exactly. So you'd go from project to project and companies were trying to move very quickly. You know, different people would ask other people, they knew who could we hire, so on and so forth. We were one of the few shops that had actually done things. When you would meet, when you guys would go and meet with clients, did you ever get a feeling from any of them that th they would look at you and think, wait, these guys are the ones who we fired? <laughs> what are you, this is like a 22-year-old kid. Yeah, like, what right. am I doing here? Um, you know, we, we did. I, we were both, we're both pretty good sales guys, so I don't, I don't remember that being 
smacking me too hard. I mean, I'm, I, I think that, you know, the prices we're charging versus like what they would be looking at for consultancies. I think a lot of these bigger shops looked at it as like play money where they're kind of hmm. like, well, whatever, how bad can it go with a couple of college students here doing this for us? Hmm. If it works out phenomenal, if it doesn't work out, you know, whatever, we haven't really, we haven't really lost a lot. Hmm. So I guess by that summer, uh, you've graduated from Cornell and then you decide to move to Boston to, to launch the company? Yeah. So we had, um, what happened very quickly is it sort of was clear, well, Ithaca is not really the right place to be. New York, in theory, would be very logical as a place to be, but we both had more of an affinity for Boston, and we thought from Boston we could easily work with New York clients or what have you. So we actually decided um, to move to Boston at the beginning of that summer. And how are you guys managing, I mean, if you were getting all these projects in, coming in, presumably they wanted the two of you to do the work. How were you managing all that work? We were working pretty hard. Yeah, we were working 100 hour weeks. I mean, we were basically, we set up the living room, we got an apartment and uh, we flipped coins on who got the, the, the bigger bedroom. And then I the, want it. The, yeah, he won it. And the living room was basically the office, right? So it was just desks with a you know, computer. And we worked, I mean, which was fine because you're working from like 7 a.m. to midnight. And then you're sleeping for a few hours and doing it again. Was it exciting? Or did, it, did it feel like you guys were building something really big? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was our first year out of college. Yeah. I mean, so we were young, full of energy. It's very, very There's all exciting. this hype around the internet, and, you know, everyone sort of got their eyes on it, looking at how, you know, the potential of it. It's, it's, you know, it's an area when you first see new technology, I, you can envision the potential of it very quickly. And I think it was it was awesome to be in the middle of it. By the way, what did you guys call the company? Spinners, because you spin the web. No. Oh. <laughs> well, it was the World Wide Web at the time. We were like, oh, spinners. You know, if you're a spider, you spin the web. Oh, oh, I see you spin the web like a spider. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, yeah, okay. very, yeah right. Oh, my God. You guys are super nerds. <laughs> so how long did spinners last? About four years. So we started it in the summer of 1995. So I guess that's three years or the fall of 1998. So maybe a little over three years when we sold it. Hmm. So a little over three years, um, we were about 40 people when we sold it. Wow. And the internet had heated up a lot. And so there were starting to be some much larger consultancies doing the type of work we were doing. And um, we didn't think we could scale as fast as these other ones. So we opted in the end to sell to one hmm. of them. What would you guys sell it for? We sold it for combination of cash and equity. I think it was 500,000 cash. So we each got like 250 cash. Does that sound right? I think it might have been a little more than that. I think we might have each gotten like half a million cash. And then... Um, and some stock. And we got equity that was worth a few million bucks that then kind of with the dot-com boom kind of went up tremendously and then came all the way, like all the way back. <laughs> Down to zero? That's where it yeah, ended. Yeah. yeah, got to watch tens of millions erode. So you guys didn't really walk away with a whole lot of money from, from that venture? No. No. I remember I had this Merrill statement that says I was worth $27 million when I was probably like a 24-year-old. And I remember thinking I'm all set. And then, you know, six months later, it was basically back down to zero. So at one point, you were worth $27 million when, when you're in your mid-20s. And then... Yeah. But it was really it was just on paper. It was just on paper. But boy, what a good lesson to learn as a young fellow. Hmm. So this is uh, like the early 2000s, 2000, I guess. Um, and 2000, yeah. And the two of you, I guess, decide to start a, n a new business together, right? We did. Yeah, we'd had a lot of fun and success in the first one and thought, hey, this entrepreneurship thing is easy. Let's, uh, let's, let's pick something new and do it again. Yeah. Yeah. So that takes us. So, so now we're at the beginning of 2001. And we're like thinking of different ideas and we're not sure what we want to do. 
Long story short, we came across this idea around mobile phones. So hmm. 2001 was still pretty early for mobile phones. Yeah. Um, but we found that a lot of companies were starting to have a lot of mobile phones, but they weren't really managing them well because they'd effectively have you know thousands of phones, but they were each on different contracts and they were on the wrong ones. They're paying too much for some, too little for others. So our idea was we would build a software platform that would allow these companies to better manage all their phones and their contracts. And we thought over time we could build that in to basically being a virtual carrier focused on enterprises. What's a virtual carrier? Just, just, um, just Think of Virgin Mobile in the UK where mm-hmm. they use a Virgin brand name and they actually operate on top of um, British Telecom's network. And so oh, that it's right. a branding on top of an existing network. Got but it. But to the consumer, it feels like they're buying Virgin Mobile. They don't oh, think they're I buying see. British Telecom. Got it. Okay. What was the company called? Simplify Mobile. Simplify Mobile. Yes. But you would just call up companies and say, hey, can I talk to the person who handles your mobile phones? Yeah. I'm Steve from Simplify Mobile. I'm, you know, I've got a really great offering to help you save money on mobile phones. Would you be, you know, I'd love to talk to whoever manages that for you. And occasionally you get someone, right? Yeah. We did have one key flagship customer that we had lined up who was very interested in doing it, which was Merrill Lynch. Big big customer. Yeah. 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 They had big, they had big phone spend. And so... That was looking quite good. And then, unfortunately, what happened in 2001 was, um, uh, you know, say September 11th was a huge uh, impact for everybody, and, and particularly for financial services companies. And in the case of Merrill Lynch, they lost use of their headquarters uh, in the World Financial Center, and their priorities obviously had to dramatically change. So with that, we lost sort of the flagship customer that we had anchored around. And so the combination of everything caused us to become much less bullish on this idea, that the, the odds of it succeeding was just not high enough. See, it's interesting because many people that have been on the show have had similar experiences, but they've said, you know, we, and we just kept at it. The first year sucked, and then the second year was less sucky, but we just kept at it, and and eventually it, you know, took off like a rocket. Um, but you guys just kind of came to this conclusion that it was not going to work. Yeah. I it, I mean, we were in a, it was a business where you look around and we were the only one doing it. And that's always kind of a scary spot to be as well. And I think mm. when we thought about the market potential and the odds and the, you know, what we'd, what we'd learned in that intervening year. I mean, we spent probably the last three months of that business, literally just pounding the yellow pages, like just coming in and just like taking rejection all day long and trying to see if we could, how we tried just really hard to try to sell it. And I, as entrepreneurs, I think we've been a big fan of saying like, well, look, if you can't, you got to start with a sale, and if you can't sell anything, you don't have an idea. And so, you know, after kind of validating that, I guess, we sort of said it's time to walk away from this one. Was that rejection hard for you to handle? Was it humiliating? Um, did it just, like, eat away at you after a while? Not too bad. I mean, it's not not a lot of fun. I remember, I remember my my dad gave me some advice. He was a he was a stockbroker for years, and he he said, "Look, when you're when you're going in and calling through the yellow pages, he's like, the thing you have to do is set yourself a goal." And he's like, "Your goal needs to be when you get thirty rejections, you can leave." Hmm. And he's like, "Cause that way, if you look at it, every rejection is a good thing because it gets you closer to your goal, hmm. and so it keeps you motivated to working at it. You learn a lot more from when things are going bad than when things are going well. So I think we sort of." We both like went out and started thinking about just getting a job. And like, I remember interviewing at a few places and sort of, you know, thinking, hey, maybe I should go the more traditional career route. Did that for, I think we both did that to some extent for a little while. And then, I don't know, we just loved being entrepreneurs. So when, when Simplify Mobile kind of like fizzled out, you guys both were starting to approach your 30s, right? So you're still pretty young. Um, yeah. Did you have a sense of what you were going to do next? 
Well, of course, you're going to get into furniture. What else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, furniture on the internet, it's, uh, <laughs> it's where it's all at. So what did you guys do? I mean, you, you wind this business down. You're still uh, presumably thinking, let's continue to work together. We, we went right back to the drawing board. So we started looking at that point. We got very... Were you living in my basement at this point? Uh, that's right. So I, in your downstairs bedroom... Yeah, so I was living there. Yeah, because we'd kind of brainstorm stuff. Right. And, and then my girlfriend at the time moved moved up from New York. And so I'm like, honey, this is a great deal. We can just live here. And the deal was he bought the groceries. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and we bought the groceries. And that only lasted about two weeks, though, before she decided that we really should get our own place. So that, that was the end of the free rent. But what happened after Simplify Mobile, what we decided, we spent basically the first couple months of 2002 – we ended up talking to a lot of different business owners, and there was this theme that emerged because if you let, if you read the New York Times and if you believed what the journalists said, you would have been left believing that e-commerce was dead. That was what all the articles yeah. talked about, you know. Because like, there were a bunch of companies that crashed. Oh, yeah, big time. But I think there was even – at that time, there was a lot of skepticism that Amazon was going to succeed. There was, you know, there were a lot of people talking about Amazon's Im- imminent demise, you know. Yeah. And so we got fairly methodical. We said, well, okay, we should start – looking at internet ideas. We know we know internet, we know internet software. We should look at internet ideas and then we should look at other ideas that we think are just good business ideas. We're good operators. And so we started making lists of ideas. We started looking at businesses that were for sale, thinking that maybe there's something small that we could buy and we could really grow. And through that, we ended up tripping over these e-commerce websites that were for sale. And we would talk to the owner operator and they would, you know, tell us how they're growing twenty or thirty percent year over year. When you say e commerce, what were they selling? I remember there's one lady who was selling birdhouses, she was storing them in a garage every day. She was taking all the orders and collecting all the items out of the garage and packing them up and taking them to the post office. And selling them online. Yeah, all birdhouses.com or yeah. some such thing. The theme we found was really simple. Consumers had realized they could go online and search for any product category they wanted. There were a lot of product categories like birdhouses that are just not really available locally with good selection. If you want to buy a birdhouse locally where you live today, where would you go if you want a decent selection? You'd go to like a a local store and you'd find like two or three different birdhouses and then you'd have to pick one of them. Exactly. Right. And, you know, yeah. they're pretty basic styles, right? Because they're only going to have yeah. three or four, right? And so all of a sudden, people sort of realize, well, I don't have to be stuck with that. I can go online. And find a hundred different options. Exactly. I can order whatever I want. I save the time of the trip to the store. It'll show up in the mail. Super easy. And so the about a month's worth of research kind of helped us figure that out. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up deciding that there was a big opportunity in buying these businesses. So the first website we ended up launching, we launched a site called racksandstands.com at the very end of August of that year. Which was? Uh, TV stands and speaker stands. So it was entertainment furniture. Did you have a particular passion for um, TV and speaker stands? I was a mechanical engineer out of Cornell. I mean, (laughs) these things are central. (laughs) But you know what you find? There were, uh, in those days, Yahoo, on Yahoo Search... You could type in terms, and it would tell you how many searches a month there were for that item. And on some of the product comparison sites, they would tell you their top 100 categories. And so both of those terms were in the top 100 search product terms. Wow. So so people were looking for TV and speakers. Why wouldn't they just go to their local, like... You couldn't uh, find anywhere that sells them. The same thing about just selection of only two or three, and you can't find a good selection. The furniture stores want to focus on living room, bedroom, dining furniture. So where would you go? Yeah. 
So wait, so you, you're thinking, all right, our first one is going to, we're going to sell TV and speaker stands. Just out of curiosity, where did you got, where, where did you even go to find TV and speaker stands? <laughs> Well, in the beginning, what you do is you'd go online and, and you'd look for companies that made them. You'd also look at what the other online retailers were selling. What brands did they have? And you'd buy the audiophile magazines and flip through and see what brands mm-hmm. they were advertising. And so did you just buy a bunch of TV and speaker stands and just have them shipped to your apartment in Boston? No. no. So at the time, there was a bunch of electronics distributors that actually would stock small amounts of speaker stands. And so we initially started off buying through them. So we'd buy out of their inventory. So we had no inventory risk. So it was all drop shipped out of distributors. And somebody would go to Yahoo or Google and type in speaker stands. And that was one of the things that would magically come up? Exactly. They'd click into it. And it's the promised land if you're looking for you know, speaker stands. So when did you launch the website? August 29th, 2002. 2002. And how long before you had your first orders? Hours. Hours? Yeah, hours. When we come back, how RacksAndStands.com, then AllBarStools.com, then EveryGrandfatherClock.com, and on and on, eventually turned into Wayfair. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Comcast Business. Comcast Business recognizes that your business needs to be nimble. Whether your customers want more than ever or your office is closed indefinitely, you can't just bounce back. Bounce forward with Comcast Business. Bounce forward with internet speeds of up to a gig so the planning stage moves faster. Update your bandwidth with a few clicks giving you the room to execute and get a network that helps keep your connected devices protected. Learn more at ComcastBusiness.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. Thanks also to Squarespace. Take your great idea and build a website with professionally designed templates. Visit squarespace.com and use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. With civil unrest, the pandemic, and the economic crisis, you want to know what's happening right when you wake up. And that's why there is Up First, the news you need in about 10 minutes from NPR News. Listen every day. And just a reminder, you can pre-order the How I Built This book right now. And if you do, I'll send you a free signed book plate to go inside the book. The book is a collection of insights and wisdom from some of the most incredible and inspiring makers, inventors, builders, and dreamers on Earth. To pre-order and to get your free signed book plate while supplies last, please go to GuyRaz.com or HowIBuiltThis.com. Thank you. 
Welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2002, and Steve Conine and Nirad Shah are on their third business idea. They're selling TV stands on the internet. It's a site called racksandstands.com. And this was a time when a lot of people thought e-commerce was dead. But Neeraj and Steve, they thought it was very much alive. So they started to advertise. Google had just launched AdWords, which is, you know, keyword bidding. Where right? people, where you pay money for... Yeah, you bid you'd a, advertise, you'd a nickel right? a click. Or... And you'd write your text ad, and you'd basically pay per click. And we would track every time we got an order which advertising unit drove it. And so we'd either bid those up or bid them down if they were non-productive. And what kind of advertisements were they? What would they say? They'd be text ads. They'd say, you know, largest selection available TV stands. Great TV stands for less. Hundreds available. Racksandstands.com. So if you were a consumer, you'd click on this. And if you were adventurous in 2002, you would put your credit card into the computer and then it would go to you guys, and then you guys would order it from one of these companies and then have that company directly shipped to that customer? Exactly. Correct. We launched it at the very end of August. So September, October, November, December, the fourth month in business in December of 2002, we did about $250,000 in sales wow. in the category. Racks and stands. Racks and, Racks stands. and stands. And we grew to be the, one of the largest or the largest online seller in the category. And what happened is our suppliers started telling us, hey, you know, you've become my biggest online retailer of TV stands or speaker stands or what have you. But, you know, my other online guys sell more of my beds or my other online guys sell more of my desks. And so we started learning that, in fact, these other furniture categories that we hadn't focused on, but that they were doing quite well online as well. And I have to assume that just like getting this off the ground wasn't that expensive, right? It didn't require a whole lot of capital. No, it didn't. I mean, some computers, we'd pay, I don't know, $15 a month for hosting on a shared hosting platform. Um, and we had a couple computers in our office, but it, it was very expensive. We, we didn't pay ourselves a dime for the first year and a half or two. That was the big, the biggest leverage was that we didn't need to pay ourselves and that we knew how to also build the software and do, 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 the, do that work. We didn't need to hire anyone to do that work. And and did you did you have like a, a number on the website like a customer service number um, that people could call and you know I don't complain or we yeah. did yes. there's four phone lines in my house that, that it would ring they were right near my bed and you and you were like one hand you were like programming the technology and the other hand you were picking up the phone yeah well this is the beauty of that setup it was near tonight this little tiny table and we had four phone lines we were kind of juggling if the phones were ringing we'd take customer calls and a lot of times we get off a call with a customer and we'd change what we were working on that day in my case i'd probably change what i was programming Nearage would you know he was the data entry guy so like we, he'd be like he'd go line up new products <laughs> and we'd be like oh customers asking for this he'd go figure out how to source it and he'd add it to the site and you know those two activities rapidly made the site a lot better and it got to where we couldn't juggle four phone lines and that led to us starting to hire people so once you start start selling racks and stands and you do pretty well, what's the next category you go to? Mounts. TV mounts. <laughs> TV mounts. And we were surprised. So what happened in that time frame also, the 2002 uh, time frame, is uh, two different things. TV mounts uh, were not widely available. So if you had a gym and you wanted to hang some TV mounts, like you didn't know where else to buy them, so on and so forth. But the other thing that happened is flat screen TV started oh, really becoming yeah. more popular. Yeah. And so people wanted to hang those on the wall. And so our timing on that was quite good. So we saw this huge sales sort of start, you know, kind of momentum. So then we built a site just for that to have every type, you know. What was it called? 
Mounts and more. Mountsandmore.com. <laughs> but it didn't really matter what you called it, right? Because you would make sure Correct. that the search engine... Oh, these were brilliant branding. And <laughs> well, the traffic was primarily driven by, by the search, by the, the advertising we would do, the paid search and then other forms of advertising that we would do. So the, the key to the name of the site wasn't so much that it was something someone would type in or that would be memorable or they'd pick it over other items. It was more that it made sense as a place you would go for this item. All right, so TV mounts, and uh, and then how did that do? That did phenomenally well. We were the mount kings of the internet. <laughs> oh my God, and and so then what what came next? Then we I think we started kind of a new beachhead in outdoor furniture, and so we started a site called Teak Wicker and More, um, which was basically outdoor furniture. I mean, it's so interesting because you didn't have to build a brick and mortar store, and you didn't have to stand outside in front with a sandwich board saying, come on, 10% off today, try our samples. Like you would just, you just put this out on the internet. You figured out the search, how search worked and people well, came. that was the sandwich board. That was the that sandwich, was sandwich board. board. We, paid, we paid Google to run the sandwich board for us. And you didn't have to take in any outside investment in, in at that time because the revenue from each expanding website was fueling the business. It was. I mean, this business is cool. It's from that day, early years on, it runs a positive cash cycle. So, you know, customers would pay us right away and we didn't have to pay suppliers for 30 to 45 days. And so you had this kind of natural cash cushion. Uh, and so, yes, it was, you know, it was, we were able to self-fund it very well. Do you remember how, how much revenue you were doing in, you know, I don't know, by like... 2003. 2004. Yeah, Do you remember, Neeraj? Yeah, so 2000... 2002 was our first year. We did about 700,000. 2003 was our second year. I think we did about 7 million. Hmm. And then the following year, 2004, I think we did 27 million. Wow. I mean, you probably had to just hire tons of people, tons and tons of people fast. Yeah. So we started hiring as early as January 2003. We hired a couple people then. We probably ended that year with, you know, 15 people or something like that. And, And then... That became the model to grow is, you know, we would be reinvesting aggressively by hiring people so that we could keep expanding the selection and expanding the categories, which then gave us more things to advertise, which then would get us more customers, you know, and that that was a virtuous cycle. And we would take the money that resulted and we would invest that into growing the team to keep driving it. Just out of curiosity, when people asked you like, oh, Nersh, what what are you up to? What are you doing these days? Would you say, oh, I'm I'm selling um, TV stands? Like, how would you describe your business to people. Yeah, I remember one time I was very uninterested in describing what we were doing and uh, a lot of Indians in the United States are doctors. Mm-hmm. They assumed I was a mm-hmm. doctor. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, no. I'm So, oh, hi, Dr. Shah. No, no, I'm not a doctor. No, I, ju- I, ju- I just sell furniture. Because if you say you sell furniture, no one's interested. There's no follow-up. No, oh, oh, it's, it's, it's almost like silences the conversation. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good way to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> so, so obviously what you were doing is, of course, what, what eventually would become Wayfair. But at this point, you you started calling it, I think, CSN stores, right? Yeah, that was it. I think at the end of 2002, 2003, we adopted that. It's a great um, name, CSN stores. Very, ca- <laughs> well, very catchy. It's our initials. Did you get a bunch of consultants to help you figure out that name? No. We could get it for 12 bucks a year, and there was no trademark <laughs> issues okay. with it. I think Neerge came up with it. It was our initials kind of conglomerate. C-S-N-O, Conine. Yeah, Conine, Steve, Shaw, Neerge. The S's overlap. Right. I got you. It was a generic name we've, we could use across any category. You know, we, and Yeah, it helped with two key things, yeah. basically. Um, one is we needed a company name 
that you know sort of implied we had a lot of stores. Sounds right? like it, yeah, so you, CSN cause, cause stores. You, you didn't want to just name it after one of the names, right. right? The second is a lot of the suppliers are very traditional companies, and so when we would go to like the high point furniture market and approach suppliers, you wanted to be able to get into a conversation with them. And during this time frame, 2002, 2003, 2004, they're, they're still not very keen on e-commerce. They're not, they're not dead set against it, but their experiences have been poor. And so what happened is when your badge says CSN stores and where you're based, oh, we're in Boston, oh, we're in Boston, oh, we're right in Back Bay, oh, we have an office on Newberry Street, oh, great, oh, what, what are you guys focus on? Oh, well, we're really focused on entertainment furniture, oh, what do you carry? Oh, we carry brand this brand, that brand, this other brand, oh, great. You get into a conversation and... Um, and they say, well, what are, you, what, what are you interested in? Well, well, we'd really be interested in this selection. We think it would do well for these reasons, da da da. And they say, oh, well, you know, how big is your store? They say, At that point, you'd, you'd say, you know, you'd be honest. You say, oh, well, we actually we sell online. And if you had to discuss online too early in the conversation, you get kicked out of the showroom. They didn't want you. They didn't want to be involved. Yeah, if with you that. came in, calling stuff like eShop.com, they knew right away. And it, it's it, an it, internet guy. But now they've gotten into a 20-minute conversation with you, and you sound very rational, and you're carrying a bunch of good brands. So now they're like, well, you know, I don't really do much e-commerce business, but maybe maybe this does make sense. So let's have a little more of a conversation. So the generic name helped you get deep enough into a conversation for them to really consider and understand you, which was really important in those days. So, all right, I'm going to read some of the um, websites that you guys launched because I just think they're amazingly... Straightforward name. <laughs> um, hotplates.com. I'm assuming that sold hot plates. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, allbarstools.com. Sold yeah, barstools. What do you think that sold? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're doing good. You're doing good. All right. Mydinnerplate.com. I'm assuming nice. you sold That's a dinner classic. plates. Yeah. yeah um, I love this one. Everygrandfatherclock.com. <laughs> a very hot category online. Pain- painful to ship. Who knew people were searching for that? We did. You can look online <laughs> yeah. and yeah, see exactly. what people are looking I'm for. like, well, we definitely did. <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, you would find categories and then you would basically get these domain names. And you started to build a huge business that way. Yeah. We got up to where we had 250 of these. How are you managing 250 different websites? How did you even get your head around that? Yeah, we had, I mean, it's very good. We had a very good tech platform that was built around the idea of building. We had a centralized product catalog. Hmm. And then when calls came in, our call system would tell you exactly where the call was coming into so you knew how to answer the phone. Did you ever have a situation where somebody called the customer service number for, uh, you know, racksandstands.com and then said, and then said, oh, thanks, you know, I'm still looking around, and then called the customer service number for, you know, mounts.com and then get got the same customer service rep on the phone? Uh, oh, yeah. When it was just near your night working, <laughs> it, that happened all Did the time. Did they ever say, hey, didn't I just talk to you at racksandstands.com? They usually didn't put it together. It was funny. it was the funniest thing, and you you were trying to hide it from them, but it, they just they wouldn't put it together. I've I've heard that that by I think by 2010 you hit almost 400 million dollars in sales. Um, you had almost five million customers, and and you were like this this aggregation of 250 websites. Like n- nobody would have known what CSN stores necessarily was. No, no one knew who you guys were. I mean, people just knew allbarstools.com or mydinnerplate.com. Yeah, and they didn't know those that well. Yeah, I mean, was that was that crazy to you guys that that <laughs> that much revenue was coming in, or were you just too busy to even stop and think about it? I mean, it's like watching your kid grow up a little bit. Like it's just happening so incrementally, and you're just following this playbook that you've got that's working well. That. 
you know, didn't, I don't, I mean, when you step back from it and think like, oh, wow, this has actually gotten huge, it, you know, you try not to do, to do that too much because it gets scary. And how how about your 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 relationship with the two the two of you? I mean, is it just you guys are wired in, in in such a way where you just you're kind of chilled out and you get along and you don't have any tension? I mean, it's just it's it's it is it is crazy <laughs> that you're still after all these years from like high school you're you're working together. No, we um, gosh, it's interesting. You know, I, um, when we would when we first started working together, I can remember having arguments where. He was usually right, and he was telling me something I needed to hear, but I really didn't want to hear it. And, of course, my emotion would flare up, and I, I remember having to walk out of the room and just be like, I got to go walk around the block and you know, just be cursing under my breath at him for half an hour. Um, when we got into this business, you know, we were a lot more mature as individuals and had been through a lot of that, had, had both gained and lost a lot of money together. And so I think you know, greed is one of the things that can create a lot of tension yeah. in yeah. partnerships. I think we'd gotten past a lot of that. And we'd also gotten to where we valued each other's advice and had gotten and gotten to the point where we were like, look, I trust what he's telling me because he cares and he actually is trying to make me better, make us better as a company. Yeah. Nirj, what, what do you think? I, I think the two key things that I think have always helped us, one is that we gravitate to different areas of the business. And the second is we definitely have always uh, found each other to be very hardworking and very committed to it. I think those are not to be taken for granted because I do think... They, those traits may not be as common um, as uh, as you would think. Yeah. In 2011, I guess, it, it was when you decided that you you needed to scale this even bigger. And this was the first time you actually took in outside investment. Why did you allow venture capitalists to get involved in this in this company? We're, we're definitely ones who would rather just fund it ourselves or yeah. self-fund the business and have it fund itself. The challenge became in 2011, we believed the big opportunity to continue the trajectory and to really capture the big opportunity, we needed to build a brand. Mm. And the amount of capital we thought to go through that migration and to build a brand that it would take was not an amount we could self-fund. Because you did not have a brand. CSN was not uh, enough of a it, brand. Right. It, you know, consumers didn't know that brand. It wasn't – you want a brand that when you, know, you think, hey, I need to shop. I, I want to redo my living room. You want someone to think, oh, I go to Wayfair. You want it to be a top-of-mind brand for a category, right? right? And that is not – that's not easy to do, and even if you figure out how to do it, it's not inexpensive by any stretch, right? So there, we wanted to be able to do that. Um, the other just modern dynamic I think that happened is investors, they started to change their pitch to being you know, purely from, we want to invest and buy part of your company to, hey, we'll invest and buy part of your company, invest in it, but we'll let you guys take some cash off the table as well. And you know, at that point in our lives, we'd both gotten married, I had, some, I had kids, I guess Neurotech had kids as well, being able to take you know a bit of money off the table as part of an equity was also appealing and so there's you know those things kind of tied together in that at that timing in our lives so you had 250 websites under uh, CSN stores how did you how did you come up with the idea for Wayfair well we knew we we, we knew we wanted a different name the CSN name CSN stores name was difficult for people to re- remember recall we've always been reluctant to use consultants but we we hired a branding agency and they came up with the name Wayfair hmm. and it it's, you know, it's a made-up word. Um, the two words, way and fair, we liked are positive kind of shop, you know, terms. Yeah. The domain name was also available. And so you weren't going to have to go out and spend, you know, millions trying to buy domain names from people. You could you could just register it and kind of be off to the races. 
So it took about a year for all these sites to kind of consolidate under Wayfair. And and to the consumer, Wayfair seemed like a brand new thing, right? It did, yeah. Yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. People were kind of like, wow, this is a cool place to shop for home. And it's the fact that you guys got into home goods. It had to do with you know with with the fact that people were searching for these products. In other words, I mean, you could have ended up being a company that sold like personal grooming products, right? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say, you know, home. The beauty of home, most categories, people want to all buy the same thing as each other, right? So you know, double A batteries, you buy Duracell or Energizer or the private label. There's only a couple categories where a huge selection uh, is really a key piece where visual and aesthetic considerations are very paramount, where people want unique items. And the two are really fashion and home. And we basically, by focusing on home, where the logistics are quite complicated and different, where there are no brands, where the visual merchandising is critical, where people have a very unique style, there's a lot of value you can add as a retailer. If you're in any of these other categories, you, certainly there's a big business there, but that's effectively the business that the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Targets and the Costcos, that they're, they're all in that business, selling the same exact items to everybody. And you, you can fight that out and try to find an advantage, but typically the advantage is either in price or speed. There's really no other way to do it. And so the beauty in home is that it's it's more multifaceted and it doesn't what if someone's a winner in these other categories, it doesn't make, automatically make you a winner in home. You're a public company. You are listed on the uh, stock exchange, right? Yep, yep, New York Stock Exchange. And the company, I believe, is today is valued at more than three billion with a B billion dollars. I mean, could you imagine? I, I, obviously, I mean, both of you guys are still pretty young. You're in your mid forties, and I mean, could, you know. There are other things you could do conceivably do with your lives. You could start. You guys could start another company. Uh, could you imagine? I don't know, like an Amazon or or a Walmart, you know, coming to you and saying, "Hey, guys, we want to buy your company. We're going to give you X billion dollars." Could you ever imagine accepting that or agreeing to that? You need to be prudent, right? So we we know all those folks. You of course would have conversations with anyone who wants to have a conversation. Last year, we grew 40% from the year prior. Huh. You know, the company is getting bigger at a fast rate. And if you believe you can do a lot for the customer, um, that is more than anyone else can do. Well, why wouldn't that continue to grow at a fast rate? Huh. So it's really super early days if, in fact, we can be the best. So it would be very premature to think about selling it if we think we can win. How much of, of the success of your partnership and, and the businesses you built is because of your intelligence and your skills and how much because of just luck and serendipity? <laughs> it's all near just skill. I just show up to the, <laughs> show up to the office daily. You know, it's obviously a bit of both. I don't I don't know that there are dramatic intellectual skill differences in humans in general. So I think it tends to be, you know, your ability to focus and keep doubling down on your own Believing in yourself and your work ethic and, and continuing to focus on a narrow enough set of things that you can win in. And we've been good at kind of staying focused on that and not listening to the other people who would tell you to go try and do other things. Mm. Nierge? You know, serendipity and luck always play a little bit of a role, right? So I think that definitely is a piece. So you think about it, we happen to be in college at the last semester of college. We happen to be the beginning of the commercial internet. The commercial internet has created a huge amount of opportunity. 
Well, if it was a different point in time, would there have been no opportunity? No. But there would be opportunity. Would it be as big? Maybe, maybe not. Would it have been different? Possibly. Would it have been as well suited to us? I don't know. You know. So I think there's a mix in there. I do think a lot of it is is how hard you go after something and how pragmatic you are about it. With all this this stuff in home furnishings that you've done, are either of you uh, any good at interior design? Neeraj likes to think he has a design eye. <laughs> he likes to comment on design, let's say that. <laughs> and what about you, Steve? I have a very clean, modern aesthetic in, in my homes. And Neeraj, is, he has a much more traditional uh, look. Your wife would probably kill me when she hears me say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's Neeraj Shah and Steve Conine, founders of Wayfair. I talked to them back in April of 2018. And today, in the midst of a pandemic company is actually doing incredibly well because so many more people are now shopping from home. In the last quarter, revenue at Wayfair jumped to $4 billion, and the company just announced that it's profitable for the first time since going public. And by the way, one last question for you guys. Um, what's the weirdest domain name that you that you ever registered? What's the Rooster Decor one? Allroosterdecor.com. That's that's probably the best one, yeah. People want rooster decor? Rooster vases, pitchers, oh planters, pots, God. you name it. If it's got a rooster, we're going to try to find it and source it and sell it to you. I just cannot imagine having a bunch of rooster decor in my house, but that's just me. Maybe <laughs> I'm thing. weird. Maybe I'm weird. Someday you'll, you'll visit someone who's got a lot. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. This episode was produced by Rachel Faulkner with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Candace Lim, Derek Gales, J.C. Howard, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Good question. That's a really good question. It's a great question. This is free therapy. Thank you for asking me that. God, that's such a good question. That's an interesting question. But what Fresh Air interviews are really about are the interesting answers. Listen and subscribe to Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. We live in a world, a country, and a moment in time where there's so much important news, and it is constantly changing. That's why Up First is here for you. It's NPR's daily morning news podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.